I, uh, I showed up in an airport in Philadelphia on Friday and was walking the hallway, and everywhere I walked, everybody was, was gathered together watching the monitors, the, the CNN monitors, the MSNBC monitors, and quickly kind of found out what I'm sure a lot of us found out on Friday was one of the more horrific and kind of tragic news stories that I can remember. And so I was tired. I tried to shove it out of my mind. I tried not to process it. I, I didn't feel like I had room for it in my heart. Um, and then yesterday, as I was home with the girls, uh, it slowly forced itself on me to wrestle with. And so we were supposed to talk today out of the book of Proverbs about the heart and motives, and, and it just didn't feel right to me. Um, the word heart by the way, is used more times in the book of Proverbs than anything else. It's really talking about what's at the core of the heart. And I think instead of theoretically talking about the heart, it's more today for us to wrestle with, with heart issues and concerns and, and doubts and fears and, and the like. And, and what I began to realize is yesterday, I, I don't know how you guys process with these things, but you go through different, I go through different stages my girls go out to sled at kind of this big ditch near our house yesterday when it's snowing. And, and because of the tragedy on Friday, I'm thinking, um, I, I, I don't want them to get hurt. Like I want to I just keep them safe. You know? And as long as they're safe, you know, they're okay. And I kind of think through it. And I'm like, I don't think they can get hurt. You know, it's snowing. There's no bad guys out there right now. You know? And I don't think they could really get hurt. Okay, they're safe. And then I'm like, whew. At least my kids are safe. And I'm almost juxtaposing it with the tragedy. And then I feel guilty because there are all these parents that their holiday decorations don't mean anything anymore. Because our holiday decorations really are about creating memories with our loved ones. And so when the loved ones, you, you have lost that way, you begin to have that tension with the decorations. This is, this is emptier because that's why these existed in the first place, was the, the joining together and the making memories. And so I'm looking at my Christmas tree, and then I feel guilty that I'm so glad that my kids are safe. At least my kids are safe. And, and then my daughter comes home. My third is the same age, seven, that 26- and 7-year-olds um, receiving multiple gunshots. And, and I, I'm thinking of Elk Meadow, which is a couple hundred yards from my house, and being in those classrooms and and knowing what those classrooms are like, and maybe you're a teacher and you know so much better than I do, and what that would be like bottled in there and having to struggle with that and wrestle with that. And so then you, your heart breaks for it and you can't fight it anymore. And so then you're thinking about it and you're thinking about the parents getting that news and you just get crushed. And you're like, this is such a tragedy. And then all of a sudden as that kind of waves over you and time goes by a little bit, you begin to think about the rest of the world. And you're, you're like, wow, this was an unforeseen tragedy, but what about the kids in the Congo or the kids in other parts of the world or the little girls being sold in, in India? Or, and you, you go, how come I didn't have the same brokenness over that as I did this, you know, and um, I can sit by and watch the news as if it's entertainment when little Israeli kids and little Palestinian kids, uh, unforeseen and, and unexpected, are dying as, as kind of global politics plays itself out. And how come I didn't, how come I could watch that on CNN and not really feel it like I do this? And so then for me, I start going, oh my gosh, this, look at all the suffering and pain in the world. And then I feel guilty because, you know, the flags are at half-mast. I'm, I'm supposed to be caring about this tragedy that's going on right now that we're wrestling with. It's kind of our tragedy. And then I'm kind of torn between the, the particular and the universal or, or the local and the global. And it's so big. And then all of a sudden, I shut down again. Like my heart's not big enough to take it all in. And so I, I, I find myself with a defense mechanism and kind of pushing it out and saying, how do I distract myself? It's, 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 it's too much for me. And, oh, my kids are safe. They're coming back from sledding. And at least, at least it's all, you know, okay for me. 
And then I begin to think, well, okay, for how long? I got a call um, on Wednesday night. I was traveling, and, and Ashlyn had grabbed a, a uh, this is my four-year-old, he grabbed a stocking and didn't understand that you couldn't just yank on the stocking to make it come down so she could look at it. And she pulled the brass stocking holder off the mantle and put a, a hole through her lip. Um, all the way through her lip, like a big square rectangular hole, and had to go into the emergency room and the plastic surgeon trying to come in and, and knit it back together. And I'm in a hotel getting text messages and feeling so helpless, you know. And, and it's just, it's all these kinds of things. So it's like my kids are safe, but are they really safe? And then I'm grappling with the human condition and that, that even though we can, like it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, understand the eternal we live in the finite. And if everything's safe right now or if there's no suffering right now, um, just wait, right? Uh, our turn will come. We're either coming out of it or, or in it or we're going to be in it. And, and then I find myself wanting to push that away. And I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about my pain. I don't want to think about my kids' pain. I don't want to think about being older and facing death and wondering what's going to happen to my kids after me and if they're going to have pain that I can't fix because I have four girls and, and the heart of my, uh, I, mean, I, I, didn't, I mean, I talk a lot about football, but I didn't play football growing up. I mean, I might not, you can't tell because I'm on a stage, but find me afterwards, I'm like five, almost ten. And, and I, I didn't play football. So what makes me feel like a dude now is that I got four little girls that I can be dad to and, and protect, you know, and I'll always be there. Well, guess what? I'm not going to always be there. So um, so we have to process it, you know, um, in times like this. We have to process it, I think, to do dignity to those who are suffering. I think we have to process it to, to be honest with ourselves about the reality of life and that, that suffering is a part of the human experience. And we can't just always theorize and we can't just always give five principles to deal with the fine-tuning aspects of our life, sometimes we just, we're just left with the question mark. Henry Nouwen said we have to learn how to live the question. And we're left with the doubts and the fears and what does my faith have to say about this? Does it have something to say about this? So it was interesting. I've been reading through Proverbs a lot um, because of this series I think many of you are. I hope many of you are. It's, it's a life-changing book at a different kind of level. And there's something interesting that shows up in Proverbs, and that's kind of my jumping-off point. It's, it's not so much what Proverbs says. It's kind of a pattern that you see in Proverbs. You see it a lot in uh, chapter 30, but it shows up in, in multiple places. But it's kind of a formula. Listen to what it says. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. It's Proverbs 30. And um, we can pick up the first instance in uh, verse 18. Uh, uh, verse 15, we'll just start there. But he says, there are three things that are never satisfied. Four that never say enough. Three things that are never satisfied. Four that say, never say enough. He talks about grave, the barren womb, land, which is never satisfied with water, and fire, which never says enough. And you go down, and then in verse 18, he says, There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden. Now, I always heard that one growing up, that it was the way of a maiden. It's a little tamer, and, and was used to say, who can really understand a woman? Um, they're a deep well kind of thing. Um, but, but it's this formula, uh, verse 21, under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up, 
a servant who becomes king, a fool who is full of food, an unloved woman who is married, and a maidservant who displaces her mistress. Verse 24, it continues, Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Conies are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. And locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. A lizard can be, can be caught with the hand. It's simple, yet it is found in king's palaces. There are three, three things that are stately in their stride, four that move with stately bearing. A lion, mighty among beasts, who retreats before nothing. A strutting rooster, a he-goat, and a king with his army around him. And what you see, again, is these lists that show up in the book of Proverbs, kind of boiling down aspects of life or categories of life in, in the kind of ways that we can hook it with our mind and get the big picture or the context. And so I kind of started thinking about that pattern or that device or that kind of idea. And I wanted to just talk about four categories from a big picture level, the context of life, that as I was trying to process through what happened Friday, reminded me about the gospel. The first one is this. It's the heroic. The heroic. I think we're wired for this. We're wired to, to dream. We're wired to aspire. We're wired to respond when fate turns in the right kind of way and takes us uh, into this picture of goodness. It's the, it's the Disney thing. If you're going to draw the heroic, the heroic goes like this and has this moment of fate where it turns out um, oh so good. The drama resolves itself in an upward turn and it's the, it's the heroic and we get behind the hero and we love the hero and we want to be the hero and we, we are just caught up with the exploits of the hero and we have this category for the heroic and the early heroic things of the Greeks, uh, Homer and the Odyssey and the Iliad, and, and it was part of that culture was the heroic. For them, immortality was to make a name in this life. I mean, literally, immortality was to make a name in this life that would last beyond your death. So that your, your name or kind of the, the symbol of you or your representation would last for forever. That was kind of a picture of of eternity for the Greeks, and it was this idea of the heroic. So they had the games, um, and the Olympic games kind of starting, and the competition, and you see this heroic. And I think we get caught up in that as Americans. We, we want to, we have enough settled in life that we can pursue greatness. I mean, enough things are kind of taken care of for us that we can dream about green, being great. We can we can compete with each other, we can try to copy each other, and we can try and make something amazing of ourselves. And so there's this real heroic impulse. And I think we preach to that. I preach to that. I don't think it's always bad. But give your life away has implicit in it this idea that we can be something. We can do something with our life. We can we can make an impact and we can make a difference. And so it's this kind of motivational thing like we're called to so much more. Um, the subtitle of my book coming out soon is The Call to Live and Die for Bigger Things. I, I think that's a part of the faith. Jesus calling Peter and later calling Paul. And I mean, he's calling them to something amazing. And, and we can call that heroic. We can call that big um, I think it's a part, but I think we can, as Americans, camp there. And we miss the next turn. And the next turn is not the Disney turn. It, it's not the Disney story one. It's, it's another Greek word. And it's the tragic. And the tragic came after the heroic, and it was the playwrights and the dramas of ancient Greece. And what, what, what defined a tragedy for the Greeks was the opposite of the heroic. It was that fate brought about a downward turn. 
things unraveled. It, it just went south. It, it tripped. It stumbled. It was like, oh my gosh, who saw that coming? And, and it brought about this instance of pain and suffering. And so the, the tragic figure is one that has this downward turn. It's, it's the opposite of the heroic in some ways. And, and it really speaks to the reality of suffering in this world. It speaks to the, the capriciousness of pain and suffering and that it can find any of us or ultimately someday will find all of us and it, and it hits a different part of us, a part that we don't always want to look at, think about, or relate with, but when we see the tragic, we, we resonate with it at a different level and there's a truth to it and we know deep down there's something about the tragedy that connects with or relates to life. Nietzsche was a philosopher I studied in grad school. He wrote a book. He was into the Greeks. He was a Greek. He wasn't a philosopher. He was a Greek uh, philologist, which means someone who studies ancient languages. He was a German, but he studied ancient languages of Greek and cultures that way. And he did a lot with the idea of the tragedy. His life was very tragic. He was nearly blind. He was racked with a disease. Uh, he was socially awkward, had a lot of failed relationships, and, and so he loved finding this element of the tragic in, in Greek culture, and he wrote a book called The Birth of Tragedy, and he found this something, as, a, as an atheist, something that connected with reality there. As a Christian, I look at the same thing and I say, um, there's something that connects with reality there. We live in the New Testament world and we have Jesus and we have Paul and we have Pauline theology and we, we love to camp there. And I think some, sometimes what we miss um, are the Old Testament texts because almost all of the great laments in the Bible from the book of Psalms to the story of Job to uh, the book of Lamentations, and then a lot of the passages in the prophets, the, the minor and the major prophets, all of those great laments are in the Old Testament. They're a part of our story, but when we just take a certain slice, the most recent slice of the story, the New Testament, and we don't connect it to the whole narrative, we lose the laments and we kind of get this triumphalistic about us going and having the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit in this mission, in this calling, and we get super excited about it. And I think we stay in the New Testament world. Our churches can stay in this idea of uh, the heroic. And we miss the history of lament and tragedy that we also see in Scripture. And part of that is with our nature of time. You see, in America, we have this, this idea of progress, this myth of progress. And I know, I mean, I've read about it, so I know about it from reading about it, but, but that doesn't matter. I know about it from looking in my own um, psyche. I always think, at least until the last couple of years, but even then, I, I still think, you know, I want to think, I'm, I'm trained to believe that we're always evolving in America. Everything's always going to get better here. My life is always going to get better. It's, it's, you start in one place and then things expand. This is America. It's, it's this story of progress and this American dream. And it's always expanding. And we have this idea. And then when we get this instance where, it, what, I don't know. Maybe it's not expanding. Maybe the Chinese really are going to take over and, and kind of dominate like the global politics. Maybe things won't really resolve. Maybe we're on this downturn. Maybe my life has, has kind of peaked and going to go a different way. Maybe, maybe. And all of a sudden we have this crisis, but it's not supposed to go that way. It's supposed to get better. And, and that's because we're trained to believe this myth of progress See, in Scripture, the, the Hebrews had a different view of time. And the Hebrews saw things cyclically, like the seasons. Um, not on a timeline, kind of the way we see the timeline, B.C., A.D., and kind of all stretched out as a line. But they saw things um, much more like the seasons. And so you see seasons of the harvest, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it talks about the seasons of life. I, I, uh, 
someone was telling me a pun. It was one of my daughters. Not a pun. A riddle. What, what starts on four, you know, goes to two, ends in three, and you know, I forget the details, but it's, it's like a person. You know, at the beginning, it's crawling, and then it's on two legs, and, and later in life, it's got a, a cane, and it's, but it's all the same person going in a cycle, and you see that in the book of Ecclesiastes. You see it elsewhere in Scripture, and you see, you see this idea of seasons, and, um, and when you think in seasons, you know there's times where things are growing. You know there's times when things are dying. You know there's the opportunity for rebirth, and then you know there's the opportunity for that, again, to be either harvested or to die. And, and then you know there's another time. And, and the, uh, the famines and the droughts and the weather, and it cycles and it cycles and it cycles. If you go to Africa, northern uh, Kenya or, or Ethiopia or other parts of Africa where they're, they're weather dependent, you can see almost in them this sense, not of linear progress through time over their lives, but this idea of paying attention to the seasons. And when you, when you live that way, like, like they did, the, the, the Hebrews and then the Jews in Scripture, you understand that there's death and there's birth, that there's a time for everything under the sun, um, and, and you, you live with it. You live with it. And when you live with it, you have to find a way to deal with it. When you're trying to deal with things that are too great, that shut down your heart, you begin to realize you have to lament. There's nothing you can do but just lament. You can't fix it. You can't really shut it out all the way. You can't doctor it up. You can't find that moment of beauty like in the Disney story. You can't say, hey, this is great. All things work for good. And that's kind of like a a bastardization of that verse sometimes. When we act as if, as if everything has a cheap fix to it. And, and, and you realize, I think, if you were to look the eyes of a parent you'd, and you'd think of, oh, let me tell them this verse, hopefully you'd realize, no, I can't. I can't tell them that verse in this time because it's not, that's not, that's, that's, that's not what's implied there. That's a cheap, kind of feel good, it makes me feel good usage of that verse. And so, what do you do? Well, the crazy thing about Americans is we don't, how to, we, we don't know how to not do. You know, and so if I were to talk about, we need to not do, the first question would be what? How do I do that? You know, what I'm you know what I'm talking about? We're so wired like, okay. well, no, no, no. You're not supposed to be trying to not do um, instead of always doing. That's what it's about. Okay, well, how do I do that? You know what I mean? Like we're just wired to do. And so when it comes to lament, I've, I've really started playing a lot with this, the word humility, the meaning of humility. Because I, I, I'm, I love justice and I've, I've made it my ambition to try to help redeem that word for the church. But justice often is about standing up. Uh, humility is about sitting down. And when we face the tragic, it brings back to us our position in things, our helplessness in things, our humility, the need for humility before God, before life, before the messiness, and and the need to sometimes sit down and to lament. About two months ago, I was with Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson um, doesn't travel as much as he used to. He's, uh, I can't remember if, it's, if he's in his 70s or 80s. Um, obviously a prolific author, a deep, deep, deep man. And he was talking, and he got to talking about lament. The Psalms are a big thing for him, and he got to talking about lament, and he paused and slowed down and kind of reflected. And then he kind of whispered and he said to everyone, you know, the thing about lament is you can't hurry lament. And I expected him to say something else, like, oh, that's deep, so now tell me more about not hurrying lament. 
And he just kind of cocked his head, sat there for like a minute, and you're just waiting. And then he leaned back and crossed his legs over him and looked at whoever the moderator was, and that was that. And I remember thinking, ah, how do I have my soul grow big enough to whether I'm in pain or whether I'm watching someone else's pain realize the need for lament and this strange thing about it that you can't hurry lament but that that's, that's the place that's, that's, the, that's the posture it's the sitting down of humility so there's tragedy um, there's heroic countered by the tragic which leads to this, the anxious. Reinhold Niebuhr talks about the idea that God has put eternity in the hearts of, of men and women, and yet we, we have this reality that we live with that we're finite creatures. Try fasting for a week and, and watch your body begin to waste away, and you realize, wow, another two weeks of that, and I'm done. Like, I mean, am I... Things are very precarious, and I've insulated myself from just how finite I am, but I'm dependent and I'm contingent on so much. And, and when we begin to realize that, it creates this anxiety, this tension. Reinhold Niebuhr says it creates a fundamental insecurity, that we are insecure and we go looking for security, and, and that, that dialectic there. Uh, is the human condition. And the only thing that begins to resolve that then uh, are, are the ways in which God speaks into the insecurity and makes the insecure um, secure. But the idea is the anxious. So Jesus looks at people and says, don't worry about tomorrow. Why does he say don't worry? Because they are worried. They are worried. He says, don't worry, because they are worrying. He says, listen, at the end of the day, you can't live here in the position of the anxious. And, and so James talks about it. You know, don't, don't plan your life out so much about where am I going to go tomorrow and next year, because you don't even know what every day kind of holds. But just in the day, ground yourself in that moment. Try to find the security there. But your anxious heart will make you try to control everything and resolve that tension. And so with um, I, I, I have sitting on my desk right now something I got in the mail. It's called LifeLock. You guys know what I'm talking about? Maybe you watched the same football game I did because that's where I found out about it. And then I saw it come in the mail and I was like, oh, I, I saw this on TV. Maybe I should think about it. But it's about buying insurance to protect yourself from identity theft. And the commercial made me so worried about my identity, and, and maybe I should be, I don't know, but the, but the reality is, it's like, where does it ever stop? Where is it? Someone was telling me, you know, sometimes I worry about the Justice Conference. It's in Philadelphia. There's snow in February that can come to Philadelphia. Like, what, what, what happens if an airport gets shut down, you know, and all of a sudden it's a half a million dollar hit. It's like, whoa, God, you know, you're in charge of the weather, Snow in February in Philadelphia is, is, is not muy bueno. This is not okay. And so I was kind of telling this to someone, they're like, do you know they have event insurance against things like that? I'm like, they do? Is it called an event lock? Like, wh where do I go for that? Are they going to tell me on a commercial during the football game? I, I need to know about that. But there's all this, there's all this, uh, there's all this stuff going on to try to help us find ways to make our, ourselves feel secure. We, we want double and triple and, and quadruple lock security. And even when we've done that, we're not fully in control. Events like Friday remind us of that. If you started sliding in your car when you were driving today, maybe for a split second it reminded you that even when we think we're in control the most, we're not fully in control. And I think we live with that fundamental insecurity, that, that anxious heart, that weighed down heart that, that wants the heroic, knows the tragic is out there, and doesn't know how to be fully in control of it. So the response to the reality of the tragic is the anxious 
So where does that go? It goes to hope. Maybe we can put hopeful. So as I've, I've, I was, I've just been trying to say, Jesus comes and he speaks into all of this. He speaks into the pain. He speaks into the mess. He speaks into the questions and the fears and the doubts. And, and he comes and inserts himself into that equation. And so ultimately, human experience leads us back to the gospel. It's the good news. It's, it's the story that there is hope. It's the story that we can anchor ourselves and find security in something. And that's why all throughout Scripture, you see when there's language of strength, it's always a type of anchoring. So uh, God is a strong tower. Our Lord is a strong tower. He's a refuge. He's a rock that we can anchor into. He's got this wing that will come around and protect us. But we, we read all throughout Scripture that if we're going to find strength out of the anxiety, it's going to come by our, our relationship with and being in fellowship with or finding our hope in God, that, that that's what anchors and grounds it. So when we get to the hopeful, we're steered back to the gospel. There's nowhere else to go. And there's so much debate around the gospel these days. And, and I just wonder sometimes what Christ thinks about the whole debate and to oversimplify it on purpose, but to, to create the stereotypes and to say, uh, just for illustration's sake, there, there really are two camps with the gospel. There's the conservative camp and the liberal camp. And the oversimplification of the conservative camp is that they have the atonement. That salvation is, if you really reduce it down, it's the atonement. It's the moment of salvation. It's when did you pray the prayer. It's when did you receive that forgiveness. When did Jesus' blood cover your sins. It's the atonement. And it all kind of reduces down to the atonement so that you know that you're saved. That's the conservative stereotype. The liberal stereotype is... The life of Jesus, the red letters, the, that Jesus was with us and that we can go out and do likewise, that we have this discipleship relationship with Jesus that, that cares about for the world, not just about myself, that we're able to go and walk among the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed and to be the face of Christ for those people, that that's the gospel that, that Jesus, the person, showed up. And so the, the stereotype here is that we have the death of Jesus. The, the stereotype over here is that we have the life of Jesus. Over here we have the one significant day of Jesus, the event of the cross. Over, over here we have 30 years of Jesus' life living with the mess, um, walking with messy people, and loving them. We have the tears of Jesus over here. We have Jesus weeping with people. We have Jesus touching people. We have people with the realities and the, the complexities of life bringing all of that to Jesus and getting an answer or a sympathetic look. Over here, we have the hope that with all this mess, we can leave it behind as a sinking ship and be restored to the new Jerusalem where there won't be any pain. And hopefully you see as I juxtapose these two. The life and the death. The incarnation. And the atonement. Christmas. In Easter, that it's not one or the other. I, 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 I refuse both camps these days. I, I call myself a hopeless moderate because I think there's a wisdom to, to the balance. I think there's a wisdom to both and. I think there's a wisdom to seeing the truth, not just in the immediate way in which you see it, but seeing it from the other angle and realizing that's true too. I think when... Ecclesiastes says the one who fears God avoids all extremes. I think there's something deep and profound in there. And so I look at this and I say, 
they're both a part of the good news. Because when the angels showed up, what did they say? What, what, what do we hear people sing about at Christmas? But the glad tidings and the good news and the hope that is born to us in the person of Jesus who was a king that made earthly rulers shake like Herod. And that when we look back, even if we just see the cross at the end of Jesus' life, looking back from the New Testament perspective, that we call that the good news because it was finally accomplished. A whole history of salvation that was talked about in the Old Testament and the prophecies and everything else that this Messiah who has come has finally accomplished once and for all, conquered death, conquered sin so that we might have this hope of life. And I look at that and say, that is the good news and that it's open to all people. And they're both a part of a robust understanding of the good news. Does that make sense? And so I look at this and I say, both the life and the death, both the life and the death do not exist for themselves, but they both exist for something different, which is the gospel, the truth, the hope we have not just of being beamed out of here someday. But the picture of Jesus shedding tears of a God who cares, of a God who took on human flesh, of the reality that the pain in this world and the messiness of this world matters. Again, not just for beaming out, but for walking alongside each other and defending each other and comforting each other. But knowing that in all of that, bringing the light of the gospel into the mess, we also have the hope of the light of the gospel as we leave and look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. The kingdom reality where what has been begun here will finally be established and we will live together in relationship not knowing pain and as the book of Revelation says not knowing any tears and so I look at both of these and say man the gospel the truth of God is so big and rich and deep that it doesn't just say this life sucks but there's another life it says this life sucks and it hurts the people that lose loved ones, it hurts. And the answer isn't just, that's okay because you're going somewhere else someday. The answer also includes, I know that it hurts. I grieve that it hurts. I'm overwhelmed with emotion by your hurt. I'm with you here in this hurt. That too is a part of the gospel. And so the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus both exist in speaking to and proclaiming the kingdom of God that we get to see on earth now and ultimately will be fully realized when Christ comes back for his and his own. So I, I, I don't want the debates anymore, the either-or debates, the, the binary, the bifurcation, the, the kind of dualistic thinking debates. I, I, I want the both and, the, the deep Hebrew richness of the Gospels and of the Bible, the synthesis and, and the amalgam and the holistic and the earthiness of it all. I want the truth of it all, not just my, my thin ways of, of seeing or or wanting to believe or the tradition. I want, I want the whole thing. I want us to want the whole thing. Because the, the, the thing about it is, is if you really just take Jesus and you lose salvation or the idea of salvation, you really ultimately lose final hope. Right? And such a, a strong truth of the sacrifice of Christ, and the whole idea of a Savior. So if you take only this, you finally, really, ultimately lose hope. And when you just take this, you know what you lose? You lose your heart. And you lose the picture of Jesus. And you begin to think just about your own personal salvation. And you get so wrapped up in that, I have in the past gotten so wrapped up in this 
that even though I, I supposedly have the truth, nothing in my life looks like Christ. Such a great tragedy in that. And Jesus talked about these Pharisees who had these biblical truths and hung on to them and felt so um, like they had the life ring. But in becoming so self-centered in it and ultimately making it about themselves, they become so callous to their fellow man and they become so one-directional in their thinking of God that God just exists to meet my own personal need for salvation or hope or rescue that, that God begins to distance himself and, and, and says, where is your heart? Where are you in this? Because your heart doesn't reflect my heart. You're using me as a means to an end. It's as if I'm Santa Claus. It's as if I'm selling you LifeLock. And all that really matters to you is LifeLock and your own personal security. And you've begun to worship and make an idol out of your own self and your own need and your own wants, wishes, and desires. And so either one of these, divorced from the other, creates an extreme that I don't want to live in. And so I hope that we'll understand the whole gospel, the whole truth, and that out of the tragic and the anxious, we will be able to ground ourselves in a, in a, a robust hope of the gospel. If you'll turn to Second Corinthians with me. Second Corinthians 5.21 Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation. The reality of the new creation. That if we're a new creation in Christ, the old has gone and we've been regenerated and renewed. But then we're given also this ministry of reconciliation to go and be Christ in the world. You see this great picture of both of those. And then he kind of comes to saying this is all from God. And then uh, verse 21, we see this. God made him, God made him, Jesus, God made him. That's the heroic. God made Christ to come to this earth as, as the Savior and the hero and, and the Redeemer, as the one above all others. God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us. That's the tragic. That the one who had no sin, the one who was without blame, then finds himself on a cross taking on the sin of the world and, and atoning for our sin and dying a horrific death. That's the tragic. So that in him we might become. So that in him we might become, that's the anxious, without him we're nothing. And there's this so that we might that, that always hangs over us as we go through life and live with the anxious and the, the stress and the fact that I'm not in control, that I'm worried, that I'm insecure. And as I go through life, there's this great so that I might become. And it speaks to the anxiety and, and the anxious. And then it concludes this way, the righteousness of God. My hope and, and what I'm hopeful for is the gospel that not only I can become righteous in and of myself so that I can stand symbolically with God as a perfect human, not guilty of sin or separate from God, but that righteousness, justice, being right with God, myself, fellow man in creation, that I can also stand in this world or in the kingdom as one who is true and resonant and reflective of the heart and the mind and the will of God. So God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to read something that showed up in the New York Times today, written by one of the better religion writers, journalists um, out there. And he's talking about Friday and he calls it the loss of of the innocence. And he starts by talking about 
the small New England time, uh, small New England town, and how it's kind of this idyllic picture of you know, the Norman Rockwell where we all think we should live because it's just peaceful and tranquil and it looks good on a postcard. And he says this, but if the ideal of the good place, I'm going to read a good chunk here, so you might want to really reflect and, and make sure you're getting the whole words. But if the ideal of the good place, the lost Eden or Arcadia, can stir up the residue of religious hopes, even in hardened materialists, so even people don't believe in God, it stirs up this sense of, of goodness. The reality of what transpired in the real Newton last week, the murder and cold blood of 20 small children, can make Ivan Karamazov's out of even the devout. And Ivan Karamazov is one of the brothers. There's three brothers and a father that are are the the figures in the book, The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky, one of the best, greatest novels, certainly one of the greatest Russian novels of all time. And Ivan Karamazov is cold and he's lost his faith. And he's, he's this picture of the doubter, the one struggling with the messiness. And so the murder and cold blood of 20 small children can make Ivan Karamazov's out of even the devout in Fyodor Dostoevsky's famous novel, Ivan is the Karamazov brother who collects stories of children tortured, beaten, killed, babes caught on the point of soldiers' bayonets, a surf boy run down by his master's hounds, a child of five locked in a freezing outhouse by her parents. Ivan invokes these innocents in a speech that remains one of the most powerful rebukes to the idea of a loving, omniscient God a speech that accepts the possibility that the Christian story of free will leading to suffering and then eventually redemption might be true, but rejects its author anyway on the grounds that the price of our freedom is too high. It's a, it's a chapter in the book called The Grand Inquisitor where he's having this dialogue with his brother and basically lays out, Dostoevsky lays out, lays out in writing the best telling of the problem of evil that literature knows, so that even in philosophy classes, you'll read this chapter on uh, the Grand Inquisitor and wrestle with his telling through Ivan Karamazov of the problem of evil. Can you understand, he asks, he asks his more religious sibling, why a little creature who can't even understand what's done to her should beat her little aching heart with her tiny fist in the dark and in the cold and weep her meek, unresentful tears to dear, kind God to protect her? Do you understand why this infamy must be and is permitted? Without it, I am told, man could not have existed on earth, for he could not have known good and evil. Why should he know that diabolical good and evil when it costs so much? Perhaps Ivan concedes there will be some final harmony in which every tear is wiped away and every human woe is revealed as insignificant against the glories of eternity. But such a reconciliation would be thought at too high a price. Even the hope of heaven, he tells his brother, isn't worth the tears of that one tortured child. It's telling that Dostoevsky, himself a Christian, offered no direct theological rebuttal to his character's speech. The the counterpoint to Ivan and the brothers Karamazov is supplied by other characters' examples of Christian love transcending suffering not by a rhetorical justification of God's goodness. Let me say that again. The counterpoint is supplied by other characters' examples of Christian love transcending suffering, not by a rhetorical justification of God's goodness. In this, the Russian novelist was being true to the spirit of the New Testament, which likewise seeks to establish God's goodness through a narrative rather than an argument, a revelation of his, of his solidarity with human struggle rather than a philosophical proof of his benevolence. In the same way, the only thing that my religious tradition has to offer to the bereaved of Newton today, besides an appropriately respectful witness to their awful suffering, is a version of that story and the realism about suffering that it contains. That realism may be heard I'm sorry, that realism may be hard to see at Christmas time when the sentimental side of faith owns the cultural stage. But the Christmas story isn't just the manger and the shepherds and the baby Jesus, meek and mild. The rage of Herod is there as well and the slaughtered innocence of Bethlehem and the myrrh that prepares bodies for the grave. The cross looms behind the stable. The shadow of violence 
agony, and death. In the leafless hills of western Connecticut, this is the only Christmas spirit that could possibly matter now. I want to live my life for a robust gospel of a God who loves and that, that love as well as the actions taken by that God in response to his love and in response to our suffering ultimately can ground our hope despite our anxiety, despite the tragedy, despite our false pretense sometimes to the heroic. It's a gospel that I can stand up on the stage and authentically with conviction preach to you because I'm reaching a stage in my life that every week I almost want to turn around and not preach. I don't, I don't like preaching anymore. It's not a game for me anymore. It's not fun for me anymore. It's not, a, it's not an exercise for me anymore. It's not a showcase for me anymore. It's, it's labor for me. And so each week when I would rather call up another guest speaker or turn around, the only thing that gets me out here is this. What am I convicted about that I can actually say to these people that I love with conviction and with authenticity and with respect so that we can all be together in truth and not on some kind of platitude or a weird religious holiday Christmas card? That's all that, that gets me here. I hope you know that. I want to stay true to that because that's worth preaching for me. Father, I, I pray that the Christians in Connecticut would show the right side of your face in this season to people who are hurting. I pray that they would have the wisdom and the maturity to sit down in humility to hold back in silence or to kneel down in tears and in sobbing. And I pray that they would show that part of the gospel. The part that looks like your son, the part that looks like you as you expressed through your son. I pray that they would, they would show that part of the good news, the part that incorporates and hangs and sits with lament. And I pray that the people in Connecticut, when the time is right, whether it's two years, five years, ten years from now, would be able to grab the other part of the gospel. And that they would be able to find a measure of solace and peace and hope that there is truth to that part of the gospel. That you do offer salvation and redemption and that we will someday be able to join you where there is no tear. So I offer that humbly, God, that you would speak and move in Connecticut and in Bend, Oregon and in the West Bank and in, in Mumbai and all sorts of other places in this world today through your church as we are the body of Christ reflecting the light of your Son and again the full, the full and whole and good and true picture of incarnation and redemption that he showed. I pray that now. I pray it with humility. I pray it with sincerity. I pray it with a hunger, a deep and abiding hunger in my heart. To your glory, in Christ's name.